have some discernment on what career you would like or perhaps what house you want to buy, um, that's fine. What I'm talking about is the idea that says truth is relative and truth actually comes from within. What's right or moral for you? Well, that's, that's good for you. What's right or moral or ethical for me? Well, that's what's good for me. What you believe affects how you behave. What you believe affects how you behave. And we've seen that right across the book of Judges, have we not? Everyone doing what is right, even their own judges, doing what's right in their own eyes. And the result is, it's a dark story, is it not? It's a display of the depravity and wickedness of men. And I wish I could tell you that today we're going to see a happy ending. But as Andrew just read the text, it's not so much of a happy ending, is it? So why not just skip the end and move on to something more upbeat? Here's why. I don't want you to miss the end because God has something powerful, I believe, to say to our church. In the final story. Now, I, I believe that, as you'll see, there are some very grim, grisly, nasty bits in this text today. But there's hope at the end of the tunnel. So what we're going to look at is chapters 19, 20, and 21. We don't have time to read all those chapters, so I'm going to be picking up on the key bits. But I really pray and I hope that as we end Judges today, it actually doesn't leave us with a sense of hopelessness, but it's the opposite. It actually gives us hope pointing to Christ. But before we unpack the text, why don't we pray? Lord, we again praise you for the privilege of gathering here this morning as your people. Something that as Westerners we probably have taken for granted, really. Uh, Lord, we, we ask now that as we are gathered and your word is open, that you would glorify yourself, that you would speak to us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So our passage, if you have your Bible there, it's going to run from chapter 19 through the end of 21. And I hope you can see it like a sandwich. Let me show you what I mean. Um, there's two statements that kind of sandwich this text. Uh, go to Judges 19, if you just open your Bible with me real quick. Um, it's not going to pop up here on the screen, so um, hope you have your Bible with you. Judges 19. And look what, look, how, what, look at this phrase. Look at this statement. This is the first part of the piece of bread, if this is a sandwich, okay? It says this, In those days, that's the days of the judges, when there was no king, in Israel. Now, pause there. Flip over quickly to the very last verse of this entire book. 
Okay, very last verse. Here's the other slice of bread. That's one slice. Here's the other slice. Ready? Andrew just read it. Judges 21, verse 25. Here it is. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. With no king, the nation has no restraint. Now, connect that verse, you see, with what we said earlier. You see how there's, there are two slices of bread? There's no king, everyone does what's right, and then in, in 19.1, just said no king. Those are the two, that's what holds it together. Here's the problem though. Everything in between, all the meat in this sandwich here, is rotten. The hundred or so verses in between these two statements are filled with vile, disgusting, and inhumane acts. You see, it's true that Israel had no physical king. But more importantly, or perhaps more devastatingly, they had no spiritual king. See, what you believe affects how you behave and how you live. And a people without God as their king hurt each other. A people without God as their king fight each other. A people without God as their king deceive each other. And that's what we're going to see in this text. So, if you're there in 19.1, things, things from the very get-go are, are just upside down. Look what I mean here. 19, verse 1, he says, In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Hold on. Stop. We kind of read that and go, oh, yeah, uh, what, what's a Levite again? Uh, concubine, uh, what? Judah, where, who? Everything is backwards. Levites were supposed to be set apart as holy men of God. They're to be the spiritual leaders in Israel. And yet, here's this bloke who takes to himself a secondary wife. Basically, a, a wife of lower status, a concubine, like a slave, really. And to make matters worse, she's had a falling out with this Levite. Maybe she's tired of being treated as a secondary wife. We're not told. But whatever the reason, she was angry enough to move back in with her parents. And after four long months, this Levite says, well, maybe I should go get her now. So, he takes a servant, loads up a couple donkeys, and heads off to Bethlehem where her dad lives. And when he gets there, his father-in-law is absolutely thrilled to see him. Maybe that's not the case for you, but at least for this bloke it is. His in-laws are absolutely excited. He welcomes them in. You know, come on in. He fires up the barbecue. He passes out the drinks. He's got all the prawns. It's ready. He, you know, he tries to keep them there as long as he possibly can. He actually convinces him to hang out a few extra days. In fact, he's so hospitable that things are almost becoming a bit awkward. He's so hospitable. To the point where the Levite says, uh, you know, 
Dad, we, we, we need to get going, like, like, really? And so, okay, fine, you can go. You can head off. But unfortunately, their departure is too late. They don't make it very far. It's kind of like, have you ever been trying to go camping with the kids, if you have kids, and you're trying to pack everything up in the car, and you're like, we're going to bomb it about, you know, five hours. And, but by the time that you actually are leaving, you'll, you get maybe an hour or two, like, down the track, right? And you have to set up camp. It's kind of the scenario here. Um, you know, they, they make it only about nine kilometers from her dad's house, and it's simply just getting too late to go on. So as they're passing by Jerusalem, Jebus, uh, the, the, the Levite servant says, oh, hey, mate, why don't, why don't we go, let's, let's see if there's some Airbnbs we can stay there, mm-hmm. right? And he goes, now here's the irony. I, I hope you're listening. Here's the irony. At this time, because Israel failed to conquer Jerusalem at this point in time, he goes, no way, Jose. We're not going there. That's enemy territory. We need to go somewhere safe to our own people. So we need to press on a few more, few more kilometers and make it to an Israelite town called Gibeah. There, we should be welcomed, we should be safe. There's so much irony in that. And so, that would have been the case. Normally that would be. But remember, we're living in morally chaotic times. So this little band of travelers says, all right, fine, fair enough. And they continue on their way, and at sunset, they get to that Israelite town, Gibeah. Now, under normal circumstances, they would have been taken in and looked after. Remember the father-in-law? Remember the hospitality he showed them? Busted out the prawns and the drinks and all that stuff? Well, none of that happens now. They're there. They're waiting in the town square. They're looking around. Nobody takes them in. It's, it's a bit awkward. Something doesn't feel right. Something seems odd. Something seems kind of strange. You ever watched one of those, uh, you know, old Western films where they show up at a deserted, you know, pot and there's tumbleweeds? Or maybe like a darker Quentin Tarantino film, right? Where it's just, it's something's creepy. Like you show up at the town and yeah, there's people there, but something's not right. And it just feels eerie. That's what's going on. Until, coming in from his day of work, they see an old bloke. Seems like a lovely old man. And he kind of catches them up and he goes, hey, wh- wh- what are you guys doing here? What are you, what are you doing camped out here in the, in the center of town? Come with me here now to, to verse 16, and you'll see what I'm saying. Verse 16, chapter 19. Look what he says, the old man. And behold, an old man was coming from, the work, from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The, man, um, the men of the place were Benjamites. Okay, catch that. Tribe of Benjamin. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? Now notice what's the Levite. He's, he's, he, he's a very conniving guy. He gives about half of the truth. That's what he says here. He says, he said to them, well, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I came. I went to Bethlehem and Judah and I'm going to the house of the Lord. Well, there might be part truth to that, but why, how'd you get there in the first place, right? Very interesting. But here's what he says though. No one's taken us in, right? And we've got our own food. All we need is a place to crash, right? We, we have our own straw. 
and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young men with your servants. There is no lack of anything. Notice what the old man says. He says, you know, peace be with you. I will care for all your wants. Only, dun, 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 do not, for goodness sake, spend the night here in the town square. Something, again, seems kind of fishy with that. It's not that he's just worried about, oh, it's just such a cold night. Just get into, no, no, no. There's something not quite right here. And the old man knows that they're in danger, grave danger sleeping in the town square. Now, because of the diversity of ages here this morning, I don't want to go into explicit detail. But the following events in this chapter are deplorable, to say the least. There are multiple perpetrators involved. A woman is abused. And an unthinkable, inhumane homicide happens. But what else should we expect? When people don't have God as their king, they do some awful, unthinkable things to each other. Do we not see that happening in this society today? You know, there's some cities around the world that are quite notorious for being bad and evil. Las Vegas, the Gold Coast during schoolies week, right? And even if you don't know much about the Bible, when you hear the words Sodom and Gomorrah, you may not know much about the Bible, but you think, you know what? Rat bags lived in that town. <laughs> like, that place was bad, right? The language used here in Judges 19 is remarkably similar to the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like the author has intentionally patterned this text after the Sodom and Gomorrah event as if to say, things in Israel are as corrupt as the days of Sodom. Now, we might be tempted at this point to think that, you know, our society, and again, if you've read, if you've read ahead there in Judges 19, you'll know what I'm talking about, that there's absolute disgusting vile acts that happen. But we might be tempted to sort of look at that and say, oh, look, our society is, we're, we're above stuff like that, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're really nice. We pay our taxes. I mean, we don't, you know. That, that's, there might be some bad, bad apples, but nothing like this. But how many of us, how many of you, make choices based on what our culture, what society approves of, rather than what God's word says? As if 50% plus one is a really a great way of defining morality. Just because more people agree with something doesn't make it right. But without God as a reference, what else can you do? The problem comes when people start saying things are right and good, which are actually clearly wrong and evil and against God's word. But, hey, look, 50% plus one, well, that tips you over to the right side of history, doesn't it? You see? That's exactly the type of society we live in today. And the, the events that are listed here in Judges 19, don't kid yourself. They are a total mirror to so much of what happens and what is actually celebrated in our society today. 
You see, friends, in the end, moral relativism actually hurts people. Sounds good, but in the end, it backfires. Because when people do not have God as their king, they hurt each other. And they fight each other. They fight each other. That's the next part in chapter 20. So, once word gets out about these bad guys and some of the just absolutely disgusting things that they've done, the whole nation comes together as one. In fact, not really throughout the whole book has there been this big of an assembly. You know, they all come, there's a response. They say, we need to respond to these guys, which is good. That's a good thing. I remember the days after 9-11, you know, like 20 years ago. I remember some of my friends actually joined the military after 9-11. Why? They're just going to sit there and cop it. We, something needs to be done. Justice needs to be served. These, these terrorists need to be held accountable for what they did, right? That, that's kind of the vibe here in Israel. Look, I mean, so, speak up. Listen, that, that's, that's what they're Look here in chapter 20. Look what they say. Chapter 20, they assemble then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba. So like, like the whole central coast, right? Including the land of Gilead and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And notice, they, they, it's not just, you know, your average blokes. These are, these are just, they've got the top dogs there, right? The, the, notice the chiefs of all the people, of all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Wow. This turnout is massive, right? It's, it's unprecedented. But who stands up to speak? Who gets the platform here? Is it, is it a judge? Is it a guy like Ehud? Is it like a guy like Barak? Is it another Samson? Oh, we've had enough of him. No. No, who gets the platform? Who galvanizes the people like no other judge has come even remotely close to? It's the Levite. <laughs> and the way in which he phrases this, it's like a dirty politician, right? It's filled with half-truths which make him look like the victim. And to top it off, everybody drinks his Kool-Aid, right? They don't inquire who did what they, or investigate things. They simply take it hand on heart and they say, we're going to take this fellow's testimony as absolutely emphatically true. And everybody's fired up. They're all ready to go to war. Everybody, well, everybody except one tribe, right? Who's not there? Either they didn't get the memo, or they said, nah, we're not going. That's the tribe of Benjamin, right? So Israel, what do they do? Hey, these blocks never showed up, so they send delegates throughout their cities of Benjamin demanding an explanation for the crime that happened and hand over these criminals, these bad guys. Come with me to chapter 20, verse 12. Chapter 20, verse 12. 
And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin saying, what evil is this that is taking place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. Now you'd think the Midramites, right? This was Gibeah's one town in Benjamin. You'd think they'd go, fair enough. What happened is unthinkable. But what do they do? No, they doubled down. <laughs> Look at this. Look at this. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. So not only do they refuse to hand over the bad guys, they stand in solidarity with the criminals. And they're not afraid. They're a force to be reckoned with. They've got 26,000 warriors, not to mention they've got a special contingent of SAS guys. Look at, look at 14, or sorry, verse 16. Among all that were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, everyone who could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. <laughs> it's legit, right? And then what happens? So now they're marshalling their troops, right? Israel is. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword, all these men of war. You know, as the morality declines in Israel, as people don't have God as their king, they turn on themselves. Enemies become internal rather than external. Instead of holy war, civil war. Do you remember, but going all the way back, I know it's been a while now, but very back at the beginning of Judges, do you remember what they were supposed to do? Drive out the Canaanites. So you see, a people without God as their king, instead of fighting the enemies, they fight each other. And this battle really has three stages to it. Come up here on the PowerPoint if it helps you at all. Because um, it, can, it can get a bit, I guess, confusing because there's sort of three bits to it. Um, there, if that's helpful. This is from Dan Block's commentary. At first, Israel heads to Bethel, assuming they're doing the right thing and that God is going to give them the victory. So they ask, all right, Lord, which tribe should go up first? Now listen, did they ask, should they go up? No, it's just which tribe should go up. They're just assuming things. But remember, the crime happened to the people of Judah. So God says, all right, Judah's going to go. But something happens here in verse 19. The people, if you're following along, the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah and the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. Remember the odds here, 400,000 against the 26,000. Okay? So you think this is going to be like, they're going to clean Benjamin, right? <laughs> the people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. The vastly outnumbered Benjamites struck down 22,000 Israelite soldiers and there's no casualties mentioned from Benjamin. Not one. 
Didn't see that one coming, did you? So now Israel asks God, all right, Lord, and this is the second part, should we be doing this or not? Ah, that's probably the better question. Well, the answer is yes. So they go out and fight again, but to their utter shock and dismay, what happens? They get whooped by the Midramites again. Now it's serious, right? Now we've lost a lot of men. We're going to pull out all the stops. They weep. They fast. They even call upon Aaron's grandson, Phinehas, the high priest. Look in verse 26, right? They're pulling out all the stops. Then, then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Verse 27, and the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days. And this is what they say. Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers? Isn't that sad? Do you hear that? Battle against our brothers? The people of Benjamin? Or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. Notice this time, there's a genuine focus on God. Did you see that? An inquiring of him. Not just a blind anger for what happened. And there's a couple differences now too in the third battle. They try some different tactics. They set an ambush. But the key is this. God is with them. God, as it says there, the last verse we just read, hands them over. The Benjamites, that is. So now only a small group. So that, that what happens eventually? They go out of this battle. They set this trap. Benjamin see, Benjamin, they, so they draw the Benjamites out. They set an ambush for them. As soon as they draw them out, the other group of Israel sweeps down and actually destroys Gibeah and they see the smoke coming up and then they turn around and they realize they're flanked on all sides. And so they're, they're totally lost heart. They, they, and Israel cuts them down. Um, only a handful are left over. Look, look here at verse 47. There's only, there's only a handful left over. But 600 men, that's all that's left, turned and fled toward the wilderness to the Rock of Ramon and remained at the Rock of Ramon four months. So they, this, they flee to these caves. Now, at this stage, it should be game over, right? They got rid of the bad guys, but I don't know if they had the smell of victory in their nostrils or what on earth is going on. But they take it to the next level. Notice what happens in verse 48, what Israel does. And the, and the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns they found, they set on fire. Men, women, children, even animals are put under the ban. They are annihilated. The very thing Israel was supposed to do against the Canaanites, they finally carry out against their own people. This is so backwards. They won't unite against their enemies, but they will unite against their own people. You see, friends, a people without God as their king fight each other. And if our church is going to 
have any compelling witness to this world. It's that, what does Jesus say? You will know by disciples how they love each other. If God is not reigning and ruling, if his word is not the ultimate authority in this church, friends, hear me, we're doomed. We all have a proclivity to depravity and biting and devouring each other. We all by nature are jealous people. We by nature are people that aren't loving. But if God's word is our ultimate source, our guide, if we, Jesus Christ himself is the ruling, reigning king over this church, we won't bite and devour each other. But if the Lord is not king of this place, just because this church has existed for 70 years doesn't even make it a legitimate church. If this church is not sitting under the lordship of Christ and loving each other, it's nothing. It's just a bunch of people getting together. Seriously. But if we are, sit, we are sitting under the authority of Scripture, if Jesus is our champion and king and we are loving each other, that is a compelling witness to this community. So a people without God as king, though, they hurt each other. I think you've seen that. People without God as their king, they fight each other. And a people without God as their king deceive each other. Deceive each other. So, okay, so civil war happened, right? Awful. Should have been a holy war at civil war. But when all the dust settles and everyone sort of caught their breath and it's been four months now, well, remember the 600 blokes that ran to the Rock of Ramon and how they're hiding out in those caves? Well, now Israel feels kind of bad, right? They, they, the 11 tribes, they realized that, well, we got a little ahead of ourselves and we actually slaughtered all the women of the tribe of Benjamin. You realize that? All the children. It's only these 600 guys that are left. And it seems that, well, unless we figure something out, this tribe's going to go extinct because there's no one for them to marry. And in the heat of the rush of the moment when they all gathered at Mizpah, they said, you know, as guys do, they kind of, you know, raw, raw, raw. And they said, not one of us is going to give our daughters to these blokes. So they made this rash vow. Remember Jephthah in the book of Judges? Remember his rash vow against his own daughter? Well, these guys, you know, they have this something about their vows here. Even though it's a rash vow, I say, well, we can't take it back. So what do you do? What do you do in this situation? I know. When you've dug yourself into a pit, blame God. <laughs> blame God for the mess you've made. Well, that's what they do. Look here, chapter 21, verse 3. And they said, Oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. They lay the blame at God's feet and demand that he fix it. Yet, did you notice, what does God say to them? Nothing. <laughs> he, doesn't even, he doesn't even give them the dignity of answering such a ridiculous accusation. So then they say, okay, we know how to get God moving here. Let's get some sacrifices going. All right, let's, that'll work, that'll work, let's do it. Okay, so look here, verse four. And, and notice, 
And the next day, the people rose and, and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. But where's God? Still silent. Still doesn't answer. He did earlier. Do you remember that? When they came to him in repentance. But now he leaves them to sort out this mess for themselves. So what do we do now? I'm kind of guessing at this point that their solution is going to be to marry off the Benjamites to the Canaanites, right? It's actually surprising that that doesn't happen. Instead, they focus on this little town called Jabesh Gilead, who failed to come when they marshaled the troops. Look at verse 5. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly of the Lord? For they had, Here's another oath, right? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who do not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. It's kind of, this is a bit odd because this is not a tribe here. Jabesh Gilead is like a suburb, okay? And they're not a big suburb. So it's weird that they would even be noticed that their absence would even be noticed. And it probably wasn't that big of a deal that they weren't there. But it's all that this group needs to justify murder. Because what they do is they get 12,000 of them, 12,000 Israelites, and they go and kill everybody in that city. Once again, turning in on themselves. Oh, except the young single ladies. You got to keep them alive because we got to marry them off to these blokes. And literally... After they've sacked the city and there are 400 virgins left, look at verse 11. This is what you shall do, right? Every male and every woman that has, that has lain with a man, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp of Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. So they strike a deal with the Benjamites, you see? See those 600 left over? They can return and they'll provide wives for them so that they won't die out. And they actually direct the Benjamites to go and kidnap 400 of these ladies from Jabesh Gilead. What is going on? But problem not solved yet. Just when you thought it was bad, it gets worse. If you're doing the math, or as you guys say, maths, if you're doing the math, well, no one got the joke. There's, there's only, you got it. I know, I, know, I know you got a comment for me. There's only, two, there's 200 left, right? 200 left that don't have a lady. So this is what's shocking. The elders have been pretty absent in the book of Judges. So the elders show up and they go, we've got an idea. <laughs> Being that we're elders and all, there's this special religious festival coming up where in Shiloh, that's the holy part, right? And, and these, these ladies, these, these young gals, they're beautiful. Young, you know, at this festival, they're going to come and they're going to dance. And here's the deal. You blokes. Remember, th these are the same guys that, uh, these are, uh, could it, I'm going to be a little bit of guessing here, but who knows, maybe amongst them was one of the guys from Gibeah. They don't even know right? Who did all of those horrible things that we learned about in chapter 19. But anyway, 
They say, well, here's the deal. You blokes, you, you, you hide out in the vineyards, and when they come out to dance, you kidnap them. What a great idea. It's <laughs> just unbelievable. Have we forgotten, by the way, we're not watching a horror film here. It feels like that. We're actually, this is supposed to be the nation of Israel, God's covenant set-apart people. But you see, when they don't have God as their king, they deceive each other. They hurt each other. They fight against each other. So, and it's interesting, they basically say this, hey guys, look, we've made this vow that we can't give any of our daughters to you, okay? But, we'll just let you kidnap them instead. That way, we won't break our vow, and you know, everything will be all good here. Verse 20, if you think I'm kidding. <laughs> Verse 20, and they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, go and lie in ambush in the vineyards, and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. It's just unbelievable. They sanction violence against their own daughters. And if the fathers aren't cool with their daughters being, I have three girls, by the way. I'd be like, I don't care what the elders say. I'm, you know, I'm packing heat, man. It's, it's on, like, right? So if, if, if their brothers come to the rescue and they're not cool with it, or if the dads show up and say, hey, what's going on? You just say to those guys, oh, Oh, so do you want to fall into the curse of the vow that we all made too? I mean, after all, you gave your daughters, these 200 daughters of yours, to these Benjamites. You see how insidious that is? They've twisted it. It's unbelievable. Look at verse 23. Let's, just, let's, let's, let's bring this thing to a close. And the people of Benjamin did so and took wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The end. <laughs> but wait, son. Because the book of Judges... That was the right response. Because you kind of go, is that it? Right? It's a well-crafted story to make you do that. It's, it's, you're kind of going, I feel ripped off. I'm going to thumb this down on Netflix or whatever, right? Is there anything more? Is there any hope? There's got to be something more. There is a reason for hope. Let me tell you what it is. It's what keeps me going. When I look at the Benjamites and I see a group of people that God really should have written off, think about it. Every Benjamite, boy or girl too, would now grow up and have to trace their background, their lineage to this violence and this kidnapping. Tell us about your parents. Well, that was how they had to get wives. But let me tell you the rest of the story. Years after this event, another Benjamite 
showed every sign of living out the ugly heritage of this tribe. He was prideful, so stubborn in his view of life that he attacked other Israelites who didn't see things his way. That is, until God knocked him to the ground. And when he got up, he was a changed man. His name? Saul. Or better known today as the Apostle Paul. From the tribe of Benjamin. That was Paul's lineage. You can trace it back to a tribe that survived because of brutal violence and abuse. That's cool. That's a cool connection. But what about hope? I said there's reason for hope. There's light at the end of the tunnel. It's the grace of God. God has a way of bringing good out of ugliness. Even the ugliness created by his people. You'd think God would write off a tribe which survived only because of brutal violence and kidnapping. That was Paul's heritage. But God in his grace changed Paul so that Paul became known as the apostle of God's grace. We also know him as the minister of the new covenant. In the new covenant, God in his grace provides what messed up people and dysfunctional churches and societies need to turn around. Jesus is the mediator of that new covenant. When he died, he put that into effect. It provides for the forgiveness of sins, the coming of the Spirit in a greater measure. The Spirit who creates a new heart in those who put their faith and trust in Him. So friends, never forget the rest of the story to the book of Judges. We serve a God who takes messed up people, people who have gotten hopelessly tangled in the consequences of their sin, and in His grace restores them. And he does great things through them. That's not to deny the casualties though, is it? That's not to suggest that everyone recovers or that sin is no big deal. And perhaps your family now feels like no hope is written all over it. Maybe you wonder if God can overcome your background. But God's grace gives you a reason to hope. Poor decisions, sinful choices, crushing consequences but there's hope the grace of God friend that's the only reason I keep on going God is still at work in the darkest of times his grace is still at work his grace is greater than all of your sin his grace is enough and that is the king that finally comes to rule and reign over his people Let's pray. Lord, we, we come now as, as citizens in your kingdom. We pray that even in this church, Lord, no doubt there is discouragement. Feels like giving up. Lord, help us to see your grace in the book of Judges that you are that king that we've been anticipating and waiting for. We pray now that as we come around and remember your death on our behalf, you rose from the grave, 
those that trust in you. This is a time to remember that or we'll be able to celebrate that forever. Pray, Lord, for those that are here that maybe lockdown's been revealing for them. Maybe they realize that they've been shaped by the world instead of your word. Maybe for those, Lord, that are here that they weren't sure what to expect. Maybe there's some that are here, Lord, that still haven't closed with you yet, Lord. They haven't turned to you in repentance and faith. We pray that you grant them that now for your glory, Christ's sake. Amen. Well, if you're here this morning and you are trusting in Christ, in the grace of God that we were just talking about, this is an opportunity as a church family to celebrate that together. We're gonna have the helpers pass out these little communion cups. And when you get them, go ahead and tear off there's, little, there's a juice there representing the blood of Christ and the bread representing his body broken on your behalf. If you're here and you're not a Christian, do not, this is not just something that we do that would be a nice religious activity. This is communion with the living God. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, my friend, we think it's wonderful you're, you're here, but do not take those items. Let them pass by. But if you're here and you are united to Christ by faith in him, then let's celebrate this time. So hold on to those elements together and I will read a passage and we'll take it and then we'll, we'll, we'll celebrate together.